This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. This episode will be airing on Thanksgiving Day 2017, so happy Thanksgiving! Hope you enjoy some good time with friends and family and some good food as well if you're here in the United States. My wife and I celebrated our Thanksgiving this last Sunday because due to my job, I always work on pretty much every holiday, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, all of those. And so we had about 20 people over, had a really good time. And um, so I'm getting this recorded even if you end up not listening to it on Thanksgiving. This is episode number 97. We're looking at Jonah 4.8. At a conference a while back, I uh, was speaking to another person who was attending the conference, and I mentioned in passing that I do not believe that God punishes people for their sin. And the person looked at me like I had lost my mind, and he said, if God doesn't punish people for their sin, then God's a divine enabler. He just lets people get away with their sin. And uh, he thought that I was going to backpedal from my position, but I didn't. (laughs) I said yes. God is a divine enabler. He's the biggest enabler the universe has ever seen. I know it's a challenging idea, but that is what we are going to see in Jonah 4 verse 8 today. And this explains, or at least somewhat explains, Jonah's frustration with God. So stick around and we'll see more about this as we study Jonah 4 8. Oh, and um, just as a side note, I have a new version of an old book out. My book, The Rejustification of God, looks at the topic of divine election in Romans 9. This whole topic of hardening Pharaoh's heart, um, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, all those sorts of verses. And I want to show you how to understand Romans 9 in light of uh, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and that God has not, from eternity past, decided who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. That's not what election is about at all. Okay, so anyway, this book has been out for a while, The Rejustification of God, and I recently, lots of people sent me uh, emails over the years saying, when's the paperback version? I prefer paperback books. Please put this book out in paperback. So last week I uh, published the paperback version of this book. So if you want a copy of the paperback, it is now available on Amazon for you to purchase. Just go to Amazon, search for The Rejustification of God, And the book should come up. There will also be a link in the show notes for this study, for the book at uh, redeeminggod.com slash Jonah 48. Okay, so uh, get that book if that sounds interesting to you. Let's get on with our study of Jonah 48 then, all right? So uh, in in last week's study, as we looked at verse 7, we saw that this uh, God sent this worm to kill the plant. And after the plant dies, the rising of the sun, we read here in Jonah 4.8 that God prepared a harsh east wind to blow against Jonah. Uh, The terminology here, God prepared this wind, very similar, again, to God preparing the plant, God preparing the worm, uh, God preparing the fish, uh, all these sorts of ideas throughout the book. And um, it's all, of course, to reach the heart of one reluctant prophet. Now, 
I want to point out that some have criticized this verse out of Jonah as evidence that whoever wrote the story of Jonah didn't know what they were talking about. And the reason is because over in Israel, there was a harsh east wind. Remember, to the east of Israel is the desert. And so as the wind blew across that desert, it became very hot. It was called a Sirocco wind, or maybe Sirocho. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. Uh, but anyway, it was a, a very hot, dry wind, and it could raise temperatures in Israel by about 20 degrees. All right? And uh, so the harsh east wind was very, very common in Israel, and of course is still to this day as well. The thing is, this is not the case in Nineveh or in Assyria. All right? To the east of Nineveh is the Tigris River and a mountain range. And so they referred to the east wind as the mountain wind. And it was generally a cool wind that brought rain. It was not generally, it was not ever a harsh east wind. Okay, so some people say, see, whoever wrote this, they were, they were writing from the Israelite perspective where the east wind is hot and dry and harsh. Uh, that was not the case in Assyria, in Nineveh, and so this is an error in the text. It clearly shows this person knows nothing about Assyria and so on and so forth. Okay, that's what the critics say. Uh, it must be an, an error. The thing is, is the word used here in Hebrew for harsh, uh, it, it doesn't, it's actually the only time this word is used in the Bible, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean hot, right? It, it can also mean strong. I mean, harsh. If you if you if someone is harsh, then it's it's it it doesn't mean hot necessarily. It means uh, negative in in some sort of way. Okay, and, and so the Hebrew word here does allow for some other idea than hot. Um, and so probably some scholars suggest that rather than this being a hot east wind, it could be understood as a strong east wind. Well, then why does that matter? Because probably what happened then is this strong east wind blew away Jonah's shelter. That's how to understand it, especially as we see here in the verse that after this wind comes, the sun attacks Jonah's head. It beats down on Jonah's head. Think about this. If it was just a hot east wind and the shelter was still standing, then Jonah would still have shade. The sun would not be able to beat down on Jonah's head. So uh, I think this really is the best way to understand the text. Um, the worm was sent to destroy the vine, the, the shade that uh, Jonah got from the vine, and then the wind was sent to destroy Jonah's shelter and the shade, of course, that he got from the shelter. And so now, here in verse 8, the sun is able to beat down to attack Jonah's head. All right? And I, I, so, so now there's no error in the text, and it makes perfect sense in light of what could have actually happened over there in Nineveh, near Assyria, and uh, also the meaning of the Hebrew words and so on. Okay? Um, now, also, this, this is significant, because once again, remember, the sun was a symbol for Shamash, this Assyrian god of justice. So when we read here in verse 8 that the sun attacked Jonah's head, you can understand it as justice attacking Jonah in a sense. Uh, Jonah was a man of the law, and as we've seen throughout this book so far, Jonah wanted justice. We talked about this uh, a lot in last week's uh, podcast episode. So God here in verse 8 is giving Jonah a tiny taste of justice. And as we all know, justice is usually harsh. 
Justice is blind. It, justice has no concept of mercy, love, forgiveness. Right? It must follow the letter of the law. And so uh, when it starts to fall upon Jonah here, verse 8 says that Jonah became faint. And so the rest of the verse, just as Jonah is starting to experience this, you know, uh, he doesn't ask for mercy, grace, or forgiveness. Say, okay, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, please have mercy on me. Instead, once again, just as we've seen multiple times throughout this text, this, this uh, book, Jonah begged with all his life to die, saying, death is better to me than life. The terminology Jonah uses here in verse 8 is nearly identical to the same request that Jonah offered in, in 4.3, in verse 3. And so uh, the question can be understood in a similar way. And these are the last words, um, the last request of Jonah to die in the, in the story. And we've been seeing this all the way along. Um, Jonah, he recognized what's happening to him, that justice is coming, and so he asks for death. Uh, and, and remember, he doesn't like the experience of justice upon himself. But he knows that justice is the only way he is going to get what he wants. And what is it that Jonah wants? He wants the destruction of Nineveh. And Jonah's sort of thinking, well, if destruction of Nineveh means that I myself must die first, because that would be justice, then so be it. Right? Jonah's thinking, if God punishes me for my sin, then God must also punish the people of Nineveh for theirs. And so now that God is sort of punishing Jonah by killing the plant, destroying his shelter, the, the hot sun of justice is beating down on Jonah's head. Jonah's saying, all right, God, you started the process of punishing me for my sin. Finish it off. I deserve death. Kill me now, God. Let justice truly be served. And then, of course, Jonah will be able to tell God that he must do the same thing to Nineveh. This is what Jonah has wanted from the very beginning. He has wanted justice. Jonah's a justice warrior, right? He wants justice to be served. He cries out for justice. He wants Yahweh to act more like Shamash. Can't you be like Shamash? That's what Jonah is saying. The truth is, is that God is not like Shamash. Despite what Jonah wants... God is not a God of justice. At least not justice the way we humans define it. In fact, all the way through this story, God's behavior has been quite unjust from the human perspective. Now, we talked about this last in the study of 4.7, so I'm not going to talk more about that now. Our, our, our idea of justice is not God's idea of justice. God is a just God. Of course he is. He is righteous and just. He does what is right. Um, God is a God of justice, but his justice looks very, very different than human justice. And often God's justice looks a lot like forgiveness. Anyway, we can understand. Now look, um, that's, that's verse 8, but, but there's some rich, rich, rich symbolism in this verse and what's been going on in chapter 4 so far. And uh, we can understand Jonah's frustration with God when we understand this symbolism. Not only is the sun symbolizing justice and shamash, um, but um, the, the vine has represented the nation of Israel. Uh, Israel, throughout Hebrew scriptures, is often uh, sort of equated or identified as a vine. And there's reasons for that. But um, so, so the vine sort of represents Israel. Now, this harsh east wind 
which was uncommon in Syria, but very common in Israel, um, you look at, the, the, at uh, the places in the Old Testament where this harsh east wind is mentioned, and it is often a symbol for invading armies from the east, such as the Assyrian army. Very often, when God tells about a harsh east wind coming from the east, okay, in the very context, it's about uh, an invading nation coming from the east. All right, and so here, uh, the harsh east wind is symbolic of the Assyrian army coming to invade the vine, Israel. And they're coming from the east to Israel in the west. So, again, taking all these, these symbols in view, in mind here, as long as the vine was alive, Jonah felt, okay, this is a sign that God is going to protect Israel. God caused this vine to grow just as he caused Israel to grow from nothing. And so, uh, as long as the vine is alive, God will protect Israel as a shade, you know, over the people of Israel. And, um, but when the vine withered and died, right, because of this worm that God sent, and then God uh, struck down Jonah's shelter because of this harsh east wind, Jonah sees this as a prophecy that Assyria is going to invade and destroy Israel, which of course, as I mentioned in previous podcast episodes, is exactly what did happen a few decades after the events we're reading about here in Jonah. And Jonah very well may have been alive during that time. We just don't know. Maybe he wrote this about that time. Again, we don't know. But uh, the point is, Jonah does not want any of this to happen. He wants God to destroy the wicked city of Nineveh before they come and destroy Israel. Jonah knows, and God certainly does as well, that the, the repentance of Nineveh is superficial and temporary. They didn't really mean it. It was just to protect themselves, ward off destruction. They're going to go back to their evil, sinful, violent ways within a day or two, a week or two, a month or two at most. And of course, we know from history they did. All right? And, and so for Jonah, think about this. For Jonah, this is terribly unjust. Someone repents of their wicked ways <laughs> You know, shouldn't there be consequences? You know, why should God allow, and think about it from Jonah's perspective and the people of Israel's perspective as well, why should God allow the wicked and violent and evil people of Nineveh to live just so they can come and destroy Israel? I mean, honestly, if, if one or the other is to be destroyed, Israel or Assyria, shouldn't it be the wicked and evil people of Nineveh Shouldn't God protect his own people in Israel against the evil and wicked and violent people of Nineveh? Now, isn't it evil for God to allow evil people to live so that they can freely commit evil against others? Why didn't God stop Hitler or Charles Manson, who happened to die this week, or, you know, one of these other terrorists or world leaders who, who Stalin, who commits so much violence? Or rapists and murderers and child molesters, which we have a lot of that in the news nowadays. So, but, but God doesn't seem to. And so along with Jonah, we cry out in frustration at God's, you know, hands-off approach to running the world. He's not running the world at all. Sometimes we humans wish he would step in a little bit more. We want God to stop evil. We want God to protect his own people. 
We want God to enforce the law, preserve justice. And yes, when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize, yeah, that probably means I am going to get some of his punishment, some of the justice. That's fine, as long as all the child molesters and rapists and murderers also get justice. The story of Jonah is almost over, but I think that we are now beginning to identify with him. Throughout this story, we've been judging Jonah, haven't we? His rebellious behavior, why doesn't he just do what God wants? How come he goes the other way? How come he's so selfish and foolish? How come he acts so strangely? Now, though, at the end of the story, it's the tables have been turned. We find that we are agreeing with Jonah. Along with Jonah, we often feel God needs to do a better job of ridding the world of evil. Uh, it makes these verses, verses 5 through 8, central to this part of the story. Just like, just like all humans, Jonah builds himself a little city, right? He provides himself a little, a little building, a little shelter to protect himself from the ravages of life. And, you know, and for a time, God blesses Jonah there. Gives him this, uh, this vine to provide shade over him, him, himself, right? And so like Jonah, we're happy. Life is good and full of promise. God's on our side, it certainly looks like. He provided this wonderful vine to grow over us. But then something happens and the protection goes away. The worm comes and destroys our vine and then a wind comes and destroys our town, our city, all right? Uh, our life. Everything we've built comes crashing down around us. And we're left exposed to the searing sun, the raging winds of life. Meanwhile... Our enemies across the way, they're living in peace and safety. They literally get away with murder. While God takes away everything we hold dear. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you in life. It happened to me a while back. I thought I was serving God, and I was, doing my best to do what he wanted. And various circumstances happened in life where basically everything I was, everything I believed, everything I had, everything I wanted, got stripped away from me. One fell swoop, gone, destroyed, shattered in pieces around my feet. And it was very difficult for me for many, many years. Went into deep depression. I don't know if you've ever struggled with that sort of a thing. I find that many Christians have. Many people have in general, in fact, not just Christians. And in my case, in fact, probably in the case of most people, when this happens, we cry out to God for justice. If, if we continue to cry out to God at all, some people just turn away from God. Say, God, if that's the way you're going to deal with me, you know, forget you. But when we, when we keep those communication lines with God open, we, we say, God, how come you're treating me this way? What about the, the, the sinners? Why can't you punish them? You know, how come you let them get away with sin? Meanwhile, I'm trying to serve and honor you, but you seem to be destroying my life. Right? You lavishly throw around your grace and for forgiveness, you know, letting all these people off the hook, apparently getting away with the, the, the worst sins possible. Uh, you know, and, and we're glad to be recipients of your grace. We just, we just feel like, you know, why can't you punish some of those people over there? So when, when someone comes along, as God's doing here in the book of Jonah, and says, um, yeah, my grace towards them is without limits or conditions. It extends to all people throughout all time, covers all their sins. I forgive them. We're not sure we like this forgiveness. 
You know, we think this is taking grace too far. God, you're, you got to put some limits there on your grace and your forgiveness. You know they don't mean it, God. God, you're cheapening grace by extending forgiveness this way. God, they're just going to take advantage of your grace. You know that, don't you, God? The reality, though, is that if grace is not outrageous, shocking, scandalous, and free, then it is not grace at all. By grace, God loves all, forgives all, accepts all, with no conditions, no strings attached, no fine print, no qualifications, no limits, no ongoing requirements, nothing of the sort. Doesn't this mean, though, Jeremy, that God just lets people get away with sin? (laughs) Yes, that is exactly what it means. Uh, Robert Farrar Capone wrote in his book, The Mystery of Christ and Why We Don't Get It. Here's what he wrote. On the available evidence, God is not seriously in the sin prevention business. God just isn't keeping score. He's absolved Hitler. He's absolved all the child molesters and wife beaters in history. And he's absolved all of us before, during, and after our sins in advance, free of charge, and forever. It's a challenging quote from Capone, right? We don't like this type of grace. Not even towards ourselves sometimes. We want them to pay, and we feel like maybe we should pay too sometimes. We've sinned so bad, God should punish us, maybe. You know, we feel that we ourselves must be held responsible for our actions, and maybe even we pride ourselves in being responsible people. There must be consequences for disobedience and rebellion, right? And truly, sometimes there is. But they don't come from God, though. Even then, though, there does not seem to be as many consequences as we would sometimes like, especially towards the truly wicked and evil people in the world. And then it comes back to this whole idea of enablement. If God is not punishing people for their sin, then isn't he just enabling their behavior? And the answer is yes. Let's just own up to the fact. He is. At least that's the way it appears to us. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 4, for example, God causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God lets people get away with their sin. He lets righteous people. He blesses them just as much as he blesses anybody else. God lets people get away with murder. Literally. Otherwise, there would be no murder. The difficult thing is that it sometimes seems that the wicked and the evil ones are the ones who have life the easiest. You notice that? Sometimes seems to be the Christians and the followers of Jesus who have life the hardest. You know, what's wrong with the way God runs the world? He's not running the world. That's part of the answer there. But uh, the the prophets notice this. They complained about this. Jonah complains about it in this story. Mm. Um, Terence Fretheim, an Old Testament scholar, he says that Jonah's complaint to God is that God is far too indulgent a father. When it comes to turning on the mercy, he doesn't seem to be able to help himself. (laughs) That's Jonah's complaint. God, you gotta, 
you got to man up here, God. You got to bring some justice, God. And if it means I get caught up too, fine. But at least you're going to destroy those wicked, evil, violent people in Nineveh before they come and destroy Israel. God, you know if you don't kill them, they're going to come kill and destroy your own people. Is that what you want, God? This is Jonah's complaint. It doesn't mean God is unable to stop sinners. Okay, I am saying that God is an enabler, but actually it only looks like enablement to us. God, the way God stops sinners is actually a way we don't think works. We don't even recognize. Uh, the, the power of God to influence and guide humanity, that's really what part of what this book of Jonah is all about. And here's how it works. It looks surprisingly, by the way, like, like Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right? If you read the book of Jonah through Christ and him crucified, you will see what's going on in the story. And what it is is this. God does not force people to do his will through overwhelming power by, um, you know, making them bend to his will. The way God influences people, guides people, leads people, is by joining them on the road in which they travel. In the story, we do see God commanding the waves and the wind and the worms and the whales or fish to do his bidding, right? But God's power in Jonah is most clearly seen in how he accomplishes his will through the blatant rebellion of Jonah and how Nineveh repents from their great evil and wickedness after nothing more than a five-word sermon from a half-hearted preacher. Hey, that's the real beauty and magic and mystery of this text. It looks like weakness and enablement. God, bring your prophet into line. God lets Jonah go his own way, and God goes with Jonah in that way and accomplishes his will despite Jonah's rebellion, disobedience, and half-heartedness. Right? To show his love to the wicked and rebellious people of Nineveh. Look, the, God is not an enabler in that he just sits back and does nothing and lets people do what they want. All right? He, he doesn't let people go their own way. Let's put it that way. That is true enablement. He doesn't just throw his hands up and say, fine, go do what you want. No, uh, that would be true enablement. What God actually does, it looks like enablement to us, but it isn't. What God actually does is, out of his great love for us, he goes with us into our sin in an attempt to rescue and deliver us from it. It's not enablement, truly. It's accompaniment for the purpose of protection and liberation. God lets us go our way into rebellion and sin so that we might learn from our mistakes. But when this happens, he goes with us because he will never leave us nor forsake us. It looks like enablement to us, but it isn't. It's him journeying with us in our sins so that he can rescue us and deliver us from it. That's what we see God doing here in Nineveh. It's what we see God doing with Jonah. It's what we see God doing in and through the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Think about this. If God had not come, if Jesus had not come, Jesus had not been incarnated, then of course we couldn't have killed him. 
But by coming to this earth as a human being, God did provide the opportunity, the enablement even, for us to kill him, <laughs> right? Um, but this was also, the death of Jesus was also the means by which Jesus revealed, rescued, and delivered us from our enablement to sin. So is it enablement? No, not really. It's accompaniment, going with us, so that by our side, he can rescue and deliver us from our sin. It's what God is doing with Jonah. It's what God did with Nineveh. And it's what God does with you and me as we read this story. God rescues us from sin by diving into the mess with us so that he can rescue, restore, and redeem us from the mess we're in, from the problems we find ourselves in. And this is what God is seeking to explain to Jonah in the final verses of Jonah 4, which we'll begin to look at next week. And uh, the final verses just says, a heads up, reveal that God does not condemn, he does not punish, he does not withdraw from sinners, but walks with them, with us, in love and forgiveness. It truly is a beautiful picture of God that looks just like Jesus. Uh, this beautiful picture of God uh, is also found in Romans 9, by the way. Remember, some believe that Romans 9 reveals a portrait of God who hates certain people, Esau, hardens certain people just so they can go to hell forever. You know, these objects of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So apparently, God has created people just so he can punish them and condemn them to torture them forever in hell. Look, uh, don't read Romans 9 that way anymore. That does not fit with the revelation we have in Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you want to learn what Romans 9 is actually teaching, see the beautiful portrait of God that is there in light of Jesus Christ. I do recommend you get my book, The Rejustification of God, and it's now available on paperback if that's your preferred way of reading. Just go to Amazon, search for uh, The Rejustification of God, and it will come up. And thank you so much for reading this, uh, reading my books, listening to this podcast. I hope they're encouraging to you and helpful. And uh, joining me online in my discipleship group, if you're there, I hope that as you read and as you listen, you grow in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and him crucified and how what he has revealed, what he has done through his life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection draws you ever closer to God, deepens your understanding of scripture, and helps you love and forgive and extend grace and mercy to other people in your life in tangible ways as well. That's what God is trying to teach to Jonah. And as we read and study this book, it's what he's trying to teach to us as well. That's what we will see as God works on the heart of Jonah next week when we pick back up with Jonah 4.9. Until then, and as always, keep following Jesus wherever it is he leads. He leads.